This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 30th of September 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, the 30th of September. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the global papers with the columnist and podcaster Tim Dowling. And then... I'm in the middle of an oil field in Azerbaijan, an unlikely place for a holy shrine. But nestled in between the drilling wells of the Surakhani oil field is Ateshgar. Monocle's Hannah Lucinda Smith explains the religious significance of the eternal flame at the Fire Temple of Baku in Azerbaijan. First, though, here's the news. Hardline Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives rejected a bill proposed by their leader on Friday to temporarily fund the government, making it all but certain that federal agencies will partially shut down beginning at midnight. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the chamber might still pass a funding extension without the conservative policies that had alienated Democrats, and the chamber is expected to hold more votes today. Suicide bombings ripped through two mosques in Pakistan on Friday, killing at least 57 people, including seven children, as believers marked the birthday of the Prophet. No group immediately claimed responsibility for the attacks from which the death toll could climb, with many people seriously injured and others having been trapped beneath the wreckage. And Slovaks are voting today in a parliamentary election closely fought between former leftist Prime Minister Robert Fitzo, who's pledged to end military aid for neighbouring Ukraine, and pro-Western Liberals. Final opinion polls showed the two parties in dead heat, with the winner expected to get the first chance to try and form a new government to replace a caretaker administration. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and in the studio with me is Tim Dowling, who's a columnist and the creator of the podcast Insult My Intelligence. Uh, Tim, I believe you've been insulted yourself this week. <laughs> or, or flattered, I suppose. It depends on how you look at it. Yeah, I found out that uh, I am one of my books is one of those books uh, that has been used without permission to train generative AI systems. Um, Obviously, I'm one of a select group of something like 190,000 authors <laughs> who are in that. I would have been very disappointed if I'd typed my name into the search engine and it hadn't come up. But I'm also outraged, obviously. Well, I mean, you know, it's taking it for nothing and using it so that it can be reproduced in many, many different ways for nothing. If, well, not for your benefit at any rate. No. Um, and obviously, none of us, because they did it without permission, nobody has any idea. Um, you know, somebody provided, found the data set and provided a, a search options so that you could just check. Uh, I advise everyone to do this, even if you haven't written a book. Just put your name in and see if it comes up. I mean, yeah. if there's a class action suit going, I'm Join in. it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, the other thing this week is we both have brothers in New York who are sort of looking at being underwater. Yeah, I couldn't believe the pictures uh, coming first I saw on social media, and then they're, they're everywhere, which is just Brooklyn underwater. 
It's incredible, um, isn't it? Those Park Slope pictures are just... <laughs> yeah. And you sort of expect to hear about a hurricane, you know, six days in advance and which path it's going to take. And this is just rain. Mm. Yeah, a lot of rain. Slow-moving storm. And it's there, was a, there were pictures of a bus. The bus was full of water sloshing around because the bus was... In, going through water that was deeper than the floor of yeah. the bus. And I mean, we're used to seeing these pictures from, from third world countries, yeah. but when you see it in one of the, the most important cities in the world... Pouring down the stairs of a subway station. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, and I just wonder if it's enough to make people think more about climate change. I don't think so. No. <laughs> no. no. I mean, nothing seems to really trigger anybody. I mean, if, this, if anything will, this will. This sort of stuff happening mm. in the cities where, you know, in the West, I suppose. And, of course, the, America's really, really focused on what's going on in Washington this weekend. Yes, because their government is about to shut down. And uh, that is always... That, this happens... I guess, to, to people outside the United States, this must seem to happen with terrible regularity. But it, <laughs> it's not that often that it happens. It's four times in a decade. Yeah, and when yeah. it does, it's devastating for reasons that people don't maybe don't understand. They think that the, the parks, the national parks will close and that, and that some civil servants won't get paid. But what really happens is, you know, there aren't enough air traffic controllers and they all call in sick because they're not being paid. And uh, it presents a real danger to the sort of safety and safe running of the United States. Mm, absolutely. Well, that hasn't stopped them commenting on what's going on in Serbia and Kosovo. The White House said there's an unprecedented build-up of Serbian troops and armour along the Kosovo border. They've called on Belgrade to withdraw them immediately. Now, this is a, a story that's taken up in The, in the Guardian. Tell us more, Tim. Uh, this whole thing, I mean, if you thought this was an area that was sort of safe and stable, it might surprise you to hear that there have been uh, uh, NATO forces there the whole time keeping peace. And this started last weekend when uh, a group of Serbian, very well-armed Serbian paramilitaries near the border uh, attacked some Kosovan policemen and killed one of them. And, in, and then three of the Serbs were killed in an ensuing gun battle. Uh, and and when they sort of the, the result was they found that obviously Kosovo say a lot of the weapons they had were provided to them by the Serbian military. Quite extraordinary. Uh, lots of there's a day of mourning for the for the three dead Kosovo Serbs. Uh, and I mean, there's lots of claims that Kosovo forces are conducting a campaign of brutal ethnic cleansing against ethnic Serbs. Of course, that's disputed. That's I don't think there's any evidence of that. This is I mean, the Vucic the uh, the leader of Serbia is has become a very hardline nationalist. And uh, the, the, a lot of this goes back to everything that's happening in the destabilized east of Europe. Is, it goes back to Russia and Ukraine. This, uh, Serbia is a very Russia-supporting country. The United States and NATO are trying to sort of lure them away from supporting Russia. And that has led to what the Kosovans call a sort of campaign of appeasement on the mm. part of, upon the part of Europe and the United States, which has led to uh, sort of bolder nationalism in Serbia. Yeah. Well, of course, the United States is trying to lead them from that, but that's the United <clears throat> States under its current administration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should Donald Trump be in charge, of course, that would be a different story. Yeah. And as we know, he tried very, very hard to be in charge. And this uh, case about uh, election interference has just come up in Georgia. Uh, and one of the uh, co-defendants has actually pleaded guilty. That's Scott Hall. Yeah, I mean, this this could be one of those sort of Watergate-like moments where everything we'll find in the future, this is where everything turned because there are 19 defendants in this huge racketeering case. And Scott Hall is sort of Georgia bail bondsman. 
uh, is the first person to cop a plea. As a, he's he's pled guilty and he is going to get no jail time and he's uh, agreed to testify against other defendants. Now, he's probably the, among the lowliest of the people charged in that he's he was charged with breaking into a Georgia election facility in order to – they were said they were looking for – evidence of fraudulent voting um, but obviously breaking you know and they were led in by Trump supporting officials so they didn't break in but it's obviously still illegal to tamper with election equipment uh, and it's it's looking like he did this at, at the behest of other people who were involved including uh, his brother-in-law uh, so he pled guilty so we'll see what happens if this there's a early trial starting next week with Sidney Powell and uh, Mr. Kenneth Cheeseborough Great the name. greatest name of all 19 <laughs> defendants. Uh, and those early trials, uh, you know, this this could be, who knows, this could be where Mr. Hall testifies against other defendants. And if that, that sort of wanting to spill the beans works its way up the chain, this could eventually affect Trump. It especially, I think, makes it easier to prove racketeering if you've got someone basically admitting to racketeering. Yeah. And of course, all of this hinges on the timing before or after the election. Yeah. So it's quite weird. I mean, everything so far, everything has kind of gone the prosecution's way in that everybody who's tried to get their trial moved to federal court has not succeeded so far. Uh, and and attempts all these are attempts to delay this so that Trump, you know, hopefully for Trump's, in Trump's mind, the best thing to do is push this past the election. And if he becomes president, then he can pardon himself. He can't pardon himself in this case because it's a state case. Yeah. But obviously, having a sitting president in jail would be, <laughs> <laughs> be difficult to explain to the rest of the but, world. But I mean, the thing is that lots of things we could never have imagined have happened, haven't they? I yeah. Mean, so it's, it's not, you know... I, I think nobody dares not imagine it anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As you say, there are 19 defendants and you can imagine the communication, the frenzied communication between them at the moment. The phone lines will be absolutely yeah. burning up. In, I hope, well, I'm not sure they're allowed to speak to each other. Oh, really? About, I think it might be illegal. The, the thing is, you remember they were all quite uh, defiant as they yes. were one, one at a time sort of indicted. And uh, I think that they will go quite quiet after this. Yeah, well, they may not need to burn up the phone lines if indeed they have the latest iPhone because they're sort of <laughs> burning themselves up. Let the iPhone <laughs> burn you. Um, this is quite this is quite odd because this is the, the we're talking about the i the iPhone 15 and uh, in, in particular the iPhone 15 Pro, I believe, which is a brand new $1,000 phone, um, which apparently gets kind of gets really hot. <laughs> um, it has a titanium casing, which I guess is what a lot of people say is might, might be the culprit or it might be a software issue. Nobody really knows yet. But people on the customer forum are complaining that, that it's not only heating up when they're using it and when they're not using it, it's getting too hot to hold. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a phone. I, I, my iPhone dates from before they use numbers, I think. But it, and it gets hot. You know, I know what people mean when their phone gets hot. But too hot to hold. You know, having to put it down—that's very hot. That's extraordinary. I mean, it seems like you can't have it in your pocket, and you can't really safely leave it anywhere. So what is, it, is there going to be a recall? Uh, no, I think that what they're saying at the moment is that there is a, there, there's a software adjustment they can make, which will change the way it uses power. Um, um, but this is a sort of brand new – they haven't really come up with a solution or really said what's going on yet because this is just – this phone is brand new. And this is people who have just bought it on user forums saying it's really hot. <laughs> but, I <laughs> mean, know. that's such a security risk. It could – I mean, could it burst into flames? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> or set something else on fire? <laughs> I hope not. 
Well, let's talk about fires, though, because we're going to head to the, the holy temple known as Ateshgar in Azerbaijan's capital city, Baku. So the temple is built around an eternal flame not caused by the latest iPhone. It's very important to Hindus, to Sikhs, to Zoroastrians. It draws 15,000 visitors each year. So Monocle's Hannah Lucinda Smith spoke to Sikh pilgrims from the Punjab who explained the significance of the place. I'm in the middle of an oil field in Azerbaijan, an unlikely place for a holy shrine. But nestled in between the drilling wells of the Surakhani oil field, just outside Azerbaijan's capital city, Baku, is Ateshgar, an eternal flame that's a site of holy pilgrimage for three religions. It was the followers of Zoroastrianism, an ancient religion that came from modern-day Iran, who were the first to build a temple here at Ateshgar in the 6th century. Later, Hindu and then Sikh merchants who were travelling the Silk Route started coming here too. Fire is an important symbol in all three religions. Today, there's a large tour group from the Punjab region of India visiting Ateshgar. Jasper Singh, who's Sikh, tells me about the religious and historical significance of the site. There was a fire. They think it's something holy, something God gifted. So they come here and for starting worship. It was before silk way from India to China. So that way passes. So they stay here, put their camel here, and gradually this room was made. The methane gas that fed the original flame dried up in 1969. Azerbaijan was part of the Soviet Union and the government in Moscow had ramped up extraction from this oil field. These days, the fire is fed artificially from a gas pipeline that comes from Baku. But the shrine complex remains the same, an open-sided temple where the eternal flame burns and around it, a complex of rooms where followers of the different religions perform their rituals. There are inscriptions in Persian, Sanskrit and Punjabi. Another visitor tells me that the very first Sikh guru, Guru Nanak, also visited Ateshgar. He also came here. Yes, his wording is written here. Can you tell me what it says? Yes, I can read it for you. But uh, only two lines I can read. Om what does it say? Ekumkar means the God is one. His name is his own Satnam. Satnam. He is the only doer. He has not taken the birth from the womb of any woman or any from Ajuni. He is not. He never takes birth or never dies. Ateshgar is a testament to how many different faiths and cultures have lived in or travelled through this part of the world over the millennia. And it's a symbol of religious coexistence. But although the wells outside are still pumping oil, it's also a warning that resources don't last forever and that even eternal flames can go out. For Monocle in Baku, I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith.
thanks to Hannah there in Baku. Now, of course, here in Britain, there's been a desecration of something that comes pretty near a sacred space. Uh, and this is this much-loved tree at Sycamore Gap near Hadrian's Wall, covered absolutely everywhere. Huge storm on social media. Uh, tell us the, 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 the story behind this. Because this has gone oh, everywhere. I mean, yeah. among other places, the Sydney Morning Herald has quite a good, <laughs> thorough take on the whole thing. But this, this is a tree that is uh, a 300-year-old sycamore that uh, everybody, I confess, I have never seen it or or technically I've probably never heard of it until until now but it sits uh, people will have seen it because it was in um, wasn't it in Robin Hood or something it was it was it in is, a film yeah uh, it was in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves yeah. and it's it's much photographed so you will probably have seen a photograph of it even if you don't know what it is it's a really elegant looking sycamore uh, in a gap in Hadrian's Wall it was very photogenic uh, and someone just cut it down, sawed it down. And and what's it's not just heartbreaking, it's absolutely baffling mm. because you, it's impossible to guess at any motive for this sort of thing. Uh, and people have t- talked about our sort of contempt for nature in general. But, I mean, we don't know why someone did this. We know that a 16-year-old boy was arrested earlier this week and then this story overnight is that uh, a 60-year-old man has been arrested as well. And what people are trying to get their heads around was that this happened in the middle of a storm and somebody had very carefully painted a white yeah. line around where the tree need to be, needed to be needed cut. To cut. It was very smoothly done, clearly, by somebody who knew what they were doing in the middle of this storm. In the middle of the storm. storm, as if to make it look like the storm had blown it down, but it's it so clearly isn't. That this is also, you know, this is spawning conspiracy theories as well, just in the absence of any actual information about why or how this was accomplished. Mm. And it turns out that it really was a very significant place for a lot of people who, you know, got engaged under it, yeah. or scattered people's ashes yeah, there. Yeah, people who got married there. Um, you know, it's it's obviously for for the local area, it's, it's a sort of uh, semi-sacred place. Mm. Uh, and uh, they will be absolutely devastated. Now, it's... Apparently, it could grow back. Really? Um, not probably not, <laughs> as you know it. I mean, if you see pictures of it, it is a flat tree stump. But there's a chance that suckers could sprout out of it, and it could live yet. And so, yeah. but I mean, that tree itself took what three hundred years. Three hundred years to go. So you can imagine, if it survives, it'll be another three hundred years before yeah. it. Uh, you know, it'll never be what it was. And what's quite interesting, too, is it's thrown up this fact that Britain is one of the most deforested yeah. countries in Europe. Yeah, I mean it's it's quite it's quite unfortunate to raise that to cut down one tree and I mean I think part of it is our is there's an element of hypocrisy here in that we are ready to throw up our hands over a single tree but the, all this deforestation has been going on for decades uh, about which we have very little to say. Yeah, well, 300 years is quite old for a tree, uh, but it's also quite old for a tortoise. <laughs> now, I know you're yes, a big is. tortoise fan. Well, I'm a how, tortoise owner. It's not the same thing. How old is your tortoise? Well, nobody knows. Uh, my wife got him when she was eight, and she said, you know, he wasn't a baby when she got him. So he's, we figure he's around about 60, uh, which is very much the, the same age as the journalist Lucy Bannerman, who had a six-year-old tortoise that died. This is the most extraordinary deep dive. Tell yeah. us about this story. Well, so she, like me, has a tortoise. This, this tortoise has been hers since she was a child, and it was an adult tortoise when she got it. It had been someone else's tortoise. This is always the worry with a tortoise, that you've got to figure out what to do with them. <laughs> 
You've got to make arrangements for the, them. Because... The, the author, uh, Hannah Yinagahara, who, her parents live in Hawaii and they have a, a tortoise. And she says she and her brother constantly fight about the fact that neither of them wants, wants to take it. custody. Well, this was, this was our tortoise was, was subject to the very same thing. It lived on a farm for a long time. And then the farm got sold. And then it went back to my wife's father, who didn't want it at all. And uh, he gave it to us. So we've we've had it now for about 25, 30 years. Okay, before we get on to this deep dive in tortoises, I just want to ask you something about, what, what, is it a boy or a girl? Do you know? Well, we, we, we always called it old man. The children just called it old man. So we just assumed it was a boy. And there had been a pair. And my wife always said the, the female died. But we took it to the vet about 10 years in to make, just make sure we were doing everything right. And the vet said it's a girl. So we tried calling it old woman for a while, but it didn't stick. So we just call it the tortoise. And does it have any kind of personality? I mean, they're not exactly cuddly, are they? Well, you get, yeah, well, you have to read a lot into a tortoise's expression. They have that sort of solid, I always think it's that, you know, solid dead-eyed look of the elegant marbles and essentially (laughs) saying the same message, which is, you know, please take me back to Greece where I belong. (laughs) Right. Tell us about Lucy Bannerman's so tortoise. So Lucy Bannerman's tortoise died. Now, this is something I've never thought about. I've never worried about my tortoise dying. I, I look at my tortoise and I worry about me dying, basically. Um, but her tortoise died and she decided she might want to stuff it. So she looked into taxidermy for tortoises and found out that nobody really wants to do it because it's too difficult. It looks like it would be easy. You just off with the legs and the head and stuff it and stick them back on. But apparently it's not almost not worth it. She found a guy, the guy, in fact, who stuffed Dolly the sheep, uh, an absolute expert who said he would do the tortoise, provided he could enter it in the sort of tor- the Taxidermist Guild's annual awards <laughs> because he was one credit away from being a master taxidermist. So she agreed, plus paid 600 quid. And then she decided... Uh, to get kind of involved. So she's sort of presided over this uh, delicate dismembering of her pet tortoise, frozen pet tortoise, as it they froze it first, and then the reassembly of him. And the very graphic descriptions and, of the, yeah, the sucking and the scraping as well. It's yeah, internal. And, and the whole front bit kind of coming away at once, <laughs> like a hood ornament, which I did not expect. I mean, none of us really, even us tortoise owners, don't really know how they're put together inside that shell. Uh. Um, all I know is that you can't just lift it off like a lid and have a look. It's more complicated <laughs> than that. Um, uh, and uh, so she, she, they did it. And they spent a long time apparently trying to get the expression just right. And I think you'd have to be a tortoise owner to know how much, how much a flutter of an eyelid can say. How extraordinary. And I don't want to give away the ending, but uh, suffice to say, there was only one tortoise entered in the category. So there was not stiff competition. <laughs> or rather, the competition <laughs> was very stiff. <laughs> anyway, he's going to be a master taxidermist. That's the good news. That's extraordinary. I mean, would you stuff yours? No. As I've said, I don't really think, I never really occurred to me that he might die. I always thought I was going to die first. I look at him and I think about my own mortality and the arrangements I'm going to have to make. Um, I think, I think that my wife's father, when the other one died, I think he buried it with a view to digging up the shell and using it to make a pair of eyeglasses or something. <laughs> or, but I don't, I think he may have buried it in a place where he forgot, he forgot and couldn't find it. Oh, God. But that's made me think a lot of us do then wear, or at least used to wear, dead tortoises on our faces. Yeah, we used to. It's not, it's frowned upon now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's valuable. And obviously, if you've looked after a tortoise for 50, 60 years, it's sort of your right, you know, to do what you want with a shell, I think. Is it? But I don't know. The law may disagree with me. Yeah, <laughs> quite possibly. Now, Tim, you've, you've suffered a further humiliation this, this week, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Which is taking play, taking part in a quiz. Oh yeah, I was on a, I was on a. There's a quiz, very good uh, quizzing podcast called Fingers on Buzzers with Lucy Porter and uh, Jenny Ryan, and they did a live version. And this is always hugely humiliating because I, I'm one of those people. I know that I would have a mastermind moment on Mastermind. Once the lights went up, I would be, I would not be able to answer a single question. And they asked me what my area of expertise, you know, my specialist subject would be. And I said something about King Gillette, the inventor of the safety razor, because I once wrote a book about him. And uh, really? nobody else knows as much or cares as much about him as I do. <laughs> and uh, Jenny said that hers was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so for fun, they, they swapped them over. I had to answer questions about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen an episode all the way through. No. And uh, it was just, even though I don't feel bad about it, it was a very humiliating eight minutes. Could you tell us about King Gillette, please? What do you want to know? Everything. He invented the safety razor. He was a sort of socialist utopian who wrote several books about a future where we would all live in one gigantic city on Niagara Falls, powered by electricity from the falls in huge apartment blocks. Uh, he was a fascinating man. He invented the, Then the next year after he published that book, he invented the razor and he sort of forgot about it for a while. Uh, it took him years to get the razor going. And, uh, and then he sort of went back to his utopian stuff later on in life. How extraordinary. Why isn't he better known? Well, it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's very, it's, he was quite, he was, uh, he is quite well known in the, for his razor. I mean, he was like, he, they designed the blade packet to look like a dollar bill with his face at the center. So in his lifetime, he was one of those famous people on the planet. People all over the world recognized him. Yeah. Um, they, and now I think, I think they have a sort of brand where they put his name out again, King Gillette Blades and sort of old-fashioned erasers that they sell now. Yeah. And he's once again uh, sort of become recognizable. And King was his first name. King not was his, his actual not, first not, name. Not he was called King Camp Gillette. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. For his sins. Yeah. I mean, speaking about quizzes today, so every Saturday I open my book post and I get sent just mountains of books every week. And one of them today is called Quiz Actually, the Festive Family Film Trivia Book. Over 750 questions, questions you'll love. It's <laughs> <laughs> clearly, clearly a Christmas book. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure I could answer any of them. Oh, go on. Um, all right, well, let me... So this is Revenge of the Mutant Killer Snowman. I mean, have you ever even heard of that movie? No. No, okay. I may have seen it, but I just don't remember. <laughs> I can guess what happened. <laughs> Elf, of course, is the big, big uh, Christmas movie, yeah. isn't it? Um, and so they say that you should um, you should play this, you take some strips of paper and write different characters from the movie on them. You fold them up, put them in a bowl, take turns, one player at a time, take a piece of paper but don't look at it without looking they must stick the paper to their forehead so everyone can see who they are and the questions must have an answer that's either yes or no am i a human for instance do i wear a green suit am i, <laughs> am I an elf <laughs> <laughs> and the winner is the one who guesses them who it is the quickest so basically these are just alternatives of, of very well known other yeah. games I think. Uh, but the point i was trying to make about this book which sadly that's the end of the coverage it will get <laughs> is that there just isn't time because cheltenham literary festival starts 
next weekend, which is terribly exciting. Lots of huge names coming to that. I'm doing 10 events myself um, with 17 different writers. <laughs> so that's 17 books to read, although some of them are art books, so we're okay on that. It's going to be a big weekend for generative AI. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it actually goes goes on for 10 days, so I think it's going to be a pretty, pretty fun event. Um, but that does sadly mean that all of these books that come in, in fact, I put some on my Instagram this morning, just are not going to get read at least until the end of October, uh, including yours, too. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> yours that, that have been copied for AI. Just the one. Just yeah. the one. Which is, uh, a lot of people have, you know, two, three books on that list. I'm, I'm just pleased as punch to be among them. <laughs> Well, Tim Darling, congratulations to you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and uh, before we go today, Monocle's Autumn Market, featuring the new Autumn Winter Collection, as well as special guest brands, is on. If you're in Zurich, head down to Dorfestrasse 90 for refreshments and more, and obviously to have a look at uh, the market. So that's all for today's programme. Thanks very much to our producer and our studio engineer, Mariella Bevan. My guest was Tim Darling. And Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.